when I originally thought about preaching from Exodus chapter 18, my mind was taking me in a different direction because I've always looked at Exodus chapter 18 in a very particular way. If you are in uh, a pastor or maybe in some leadership capacity, when you've read chapter 18, you often read it through that lens. It's about structure, it's about management, it's about delegation, it's about change, it's about transition and all of these types of things. And in fact, I was looking just even before I stepped here, up here, I was looking at my personal notes that I put in the margin around uh, Exodus chapter 18 just through my personal study through the years. And, and those are all the things that I have in the, in the margins. Chad, remember, shared leadership, delegation, uh, release things so that you can focus on, on greater things. All these things are the things that I have in the margin. And yet when I came to the passage this week to write the sermon, God impressed upon my heart uh, something else, something that I, I hadn't necessarily seen in this text before. In fact, I hope it's something that, that all of us can take and, and some lessons that all of us can take even if uh, we aren't in a leadership capacity. And I discovered something about this text which I will share with you uh, towards the end of the sermon. But I'm actually beginning with my final illustration. I, I wrote the sermon and I and I have had a final illustration. I even had already put my page numbers on. It says page 16. That's not normally where you want to be. So, so be patient with me if I get a little confused right at the beginning. But, but I wanted to begin with the final illustration because it was a story that, that, that for some reason when I was reading through uh, Exodus chapter 18 to, uh, this week, this story um, struck me. And it's a story of, from a book a classic that was written probably well over 100 years ago by a woman by the name of Mary Ann Evans. And she wrote under the, the nom de plume, the, her pen name, George Eliot. The book is Silas Marner. Some of you have read that book? Silas Marner, a great classic. And it is a story of a man, a, a weaver, a heartbroken weaver who has lost his faith in in, in humanity, he's lost his faith in God, he's lost his faith in injustice. He was accused of a crime and, and, and set up for this crime, and through that process, he lost his fiance, he lost his, his work, and, and, and he, he pulled away from this church in this town that he lived called Lantern's Yard. He is now living on the outskirts of a, of a new place called Revlo. He's a, a hermit in many ways. He's a, a recluse, and people find him strange and odd. And he has one obsession now. His one obsession is his money. In fact, the story tells us that, that he takes this money out every night. He, holds, he keeps it under a floorboard in his house, and he takes this money out every night, and he looks at it, and he counts it, and he holds it in his hands, and, and he is just burdened by this obsession with his money. He's burdened by, by the things that have happened to him in his life. He's burdened by, by the, the anger that he has in his life. He's a man that's full of despair. One day his money is stolen and this only increases this burden on his life. Rather than, than saying, well, I no longer have the money and no longer obsessing about it, he begins to obsess about it more deeply and the burden grows. He grows into a, a, a deeper pit of anger and despair and the burden just continues to increase on Silas Marner. 
Until one day, one evening, an orphan girl, one winter evening, an orphan girl wanders into his house. And Mary Ann Evans, George Eliot, as she was known since women could not, were not often published in that day, she wrote under that name in order to try to get published. But as Mary Ann Evans wrote, she said that, that, that he was so obsessed that when he first saw this little girl and he saw the glimmers of, of, of light off her blonde hair, that he thought it was his gold returned. And he wanted that gold back, and so he, he goes to it, and then he realizes that it's a child. Well, story continues on, and, and he discovers that she is an orphan. He finds her mother dead in some snow along the side of the road, and circumstances lead that he decides to take this girl in and raise her as his own. Silas names the girl Epi, and through this, this unexpected individual that has walked through his door unexpectedly and without uh, uh, prompting, through this, through this little girl, Silas's martyr's life is changed. The, the way he's gone about his life day in and day out in his same routine and his same reclusiveness begins to change and, and he adjusts the way that he is living. The, 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 the burden of his of his lost money begins to be lifted. The burden of his loneliness begins to be lifted. The burden of his bitterness begins to, to be lifted through an unexpected individual, a little girl. Totally alters the way he does things. And through this altering, this burden is lifted. For some reason, when I was reading Exodus chapter 18 this week, that story popped into my brain, and I want to share with you why. So I open, ask you to open with me your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18, as Pastor Andrea already read some of it this morning. Jethro is the father-in-law of Moses. We discover through this passage that in Exodus chapter 18 that at some point in time, Moses must have sent his wife and his two sons back to, uh, to live with his, his father-in-law, live with their family. And so, and so now the father-in-law sends Moses a note and says, hey, I'm bringing your wife and your two kids back to you. And so Moses meets them, as, as, as Pastor Andrea read. Moses testifies of what God has done, and, and they have a feast, and they celebrate. And then the next day, Jethro goes to work with his son-in-law, with Moses. And he's observing Moses and, and the things that are happening in Moses' life. Now, we can be glad because, as you're going to see in the story, it seems like Moses must have a good relationship with his in-laws. Not everyone in this room can testify to that. In fact, the studies actually show uh, quite clearly that, that that in-laws are one of the great tensions that exist within marriage. One study I read, and some of you are smiling, don't smile so big, please uh, tone those down just a little bit. But some of those studies I read uh, said that, one study I read said that more than 50% of married couples blame their in-laws for their fights in their marriages. And these couples, one in five of these couples report having considered divorce due to their in-laws. What is the number one tension that these couples report in relation to their in-laws? The number one tension, unwanted opinions. 
Not unwanted opinions about the kids. That's actually number three. Number one, unwanted opinions. Number two, that their spouse takes their in-law's side. And number three, that their opinions are the opinions about their children. But the number one is unwanted opinions of, of any sort. Just opinions in general. These people probably would say, those blessed in-laws. But this is a more gentle thing. I think that Moses would maybe say his blessed in-law. And we'll see this in this story. And we'll see that, that it's a good thing that they had a relationship based on what we read. As, as Pastor Andrea read there in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 13, the next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. Jethro is at work with Moses and he observes this and he sees what is going on and, and, and Moses is not being egotistical. He's not being a control freak necessarily with the way that he is doing things. In fact, in what I was studying this week is that, is that still in many Eastern, middle, many middle Eastern and tribal cultures, this is still the way it's done. When you are the leader of that group, you are also judge, you are also jury, and people expect for you to make these decisions. And so Moses is doing what he knew and what he understood. But Jethro saw a problem. We are told in the next verse that Jethro asked Moses, asked him this question, and just imagine you're the in-law in this question or the son or daughter-in-law in this question, what are you doing? Now that question could be a challenge no matter what. Even if the person asked it in the nicest of spirits, we are just by nature somewhat defensive when people challenge us or ask us, why are we doing something? Someone could come up to you and say, you know, I don't understand what you're doing there in very gentle voice. And we may go home and say, man, that person, they're so critical of me, you know. It doesn't even have to be like, what are you doing? It can be even gentle and we can, we can be, take offense to it in some way. That's kind of how we are sometimes. But, but he asked this question, what are you doing? And what Jethro saw, what the great problem that Jethro saw is that Moses is solely making decisions and that people are just standing around him all day waiting on him. Moses was the modern day Department of Motor Vehicles or we could say Costco on a Friday with only one cashier. That's, that's, who, that's who Moses is in this moment. Costco on Friday with only one cashier. But Moses explains to Jethro, he says, because the people come to me to seek God's will, and he's not being egotistical here. Again, he cares about these people. He values them. He wants to make important decisions on, for them and help lead them and guide them. His heart was in the right place, but he was short-sighted. He didn't see how his leadership was impacting him and how his leadership was impacting others. And so Jethro is now here to open his eyes. And again, it's, it's lucky that Jethro and Moses hopefully had a good relationship because what comes next, again, even if it was said in a nice way, would be hard for a son-in-law to hear. It's hard for any of us to hear from an in-law or from anyone else because Jethro is about to tell Moses, the way you are doing everything is making a mess. That's what he's about to tell him. He looks and he says, what are you doing? Moses explains what he is doing. And then he tells them this. Then Jethro says this to him, verse 17. What you are doing is not 
good. That's the verse right there. What you are doing is not good. None of us like to hear that. Tell me if you enjoy hearing what you're doing is not good. You're building something. You're cleaning something. You know, our kids are cleaning their room. We come up. It's not good enough. They go, and then children grow up into husbands. Wife says, can you do this for me? We try to do it, maybe. Husband says, can you do this for me? The other person says, no, I need more help. And then the husband or the wife goes, because we're the same as our kids, just older. We may do it more like, okay, well then you can just do it yourself. But whatever it is, he says, this is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. He says, what you are doing is not only burdening you, but it is also burdening the people that you are trying to help. Trying to help. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall, uh, you shall uh, represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know know." the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will, hear the bird, they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. He's saying, listen to me, Moses. I, I have this plan. I'm going to give you this plan. And if you follow this, you'll be blessed and the people will be blessed and it will be good for you. And then verse 24. And some of you, I'm sure, wish that you had a son or a daughter-in-law that felt the same way. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything that he said. Any of you want in-laws like that? Don't raise your hand right now because some of you are sitting close to your in-laws. So. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. This is a simple story, but it has many lessons for us. It has lessons for leaders, of course, and as I said, that is really what I think sometimes we often focus on when we read this story. In fact, like I said, this is what I know for myself. Whenever I've read the story, this is what I focus on, this structure of leadership, these ideas of leadership, about delegating, about management, about, about, about shared responsibility, about shifting the focus from, from these things to maybe more weightier or important things. But I don't want to talk necessarily about those things. Those things seem to be the, the, the things that we often look at. But I want to look at three things that I saw when I read this text that, 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 that God showed to me in a different way, in a different way than maybe I'd seen before. The first one is this. The first lesson I see in this, and this is probably why I thought of that story from uh, the book Silas Marner. God often uses surprising individuals and means by which to communicate to us truth. Things that we need to hear, things that we need to know and understand. God often uses surprising ways, surprising individuals, surprising means by which to communicate to us truth. We're very familiar probably with this story if we've grown up in church. We, we, we recognize the connection between Jethro and, and, and Moses, and, and so it doesn't seem so odd to us, but, 
But look what, what Ellen White wrote in 1905. She wrote this. Jethro was singled out from the darkness of the Gentile world to reveal the principles of heaven. And then she says this, and she's speaking about this idea that there are those outside of our regular expectations of who will give us counsel. God has ever had appointed agencies and has ever given abundance evidence, abundant evidences that these agencies were heaven-appointed and heaven-sent. This was a Gentile instructing the Israelites how to lead and how to, to move and how to work. This is, what, this is what Ellen White is saying, that, that this Gentile that was raised in this darkness, God pulled him out of there to instruct the Israelites. We at times are hesitant to embrace truth, not only from those we love and from those we, we, we care about and that we listen to and that we respect, but we are also, in fact, hesitant to embrace truth if it is not, even more so, we're hesitant to embrace truth if it is not from with our walls of comfort or if it is not from people that we normally would agree with on all other points or most points. If it's someone that's outside of our, our political leanings or outside of our spiritual leanings or outside of our, 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 our friendship groups, we, we are inclined to not listen to these persons in the same way. But what I see here as I read this story, I, I see that, that God sent someone unexpected out of a dark world in order to instruct his people of light. And the value of, of that light was not based upon who the messenger was, but the value of Jethro's counsel was based upon the fruits that it produced. That is what Ellen White is saying when she says, God has given plenty of evidence that these were heaven appointed and heaven sent. In other words, like if you don't, if you don't necessarily trust the individual, think about what is actually being said or what is actually being uh, delivered. And is it fruit that shows that it was heaven appointed or heaven sent? That's one of the first things that I think all of us can learn. We should be open to truth and ideas from those outside the confines of our friend groups, our political circles, or even our church and religious beliefs. Bill Knott, who had our prayer this morning, wrote an editorial back in 2013. And as I was writing this, I remembered that editorial, and I went to make sure I was correct in this. And the title of that editorial was called Reclaiming the Library. And he wrote about this very principle. And in that editorial, though, he relates the following story. The story about a book written by Nathaniel Hawthorne in 1843. It's a 6,700-word short story and it was deemed by those in society a most happy exposure of the inconsistencies of popular religion. And this thing that was a, a, an attack against religious groups and that other religious groups might have been against by this man, Nathaniel Hawthorne, was so prized by the Review and Herald founder and editor, James White, that it was almost continuously offered for sale in booklet or track form on the back page of the Review and Herald magazine. This book. Can you imagine such a thing today? Such a track written by a secular individual criticizing religious folk and the way they're doing things, being allowed in such a manner? And yet James White said, you know what? It's not from our people, it's not from our thing, but it has some truth in it, and we should have our people read it. We should have our people read it. James White was someone that understood the value of Jethro's in our lives. 
the unexpected who can still deliver a word of truth or counsel that can help guide us and lead us and maybe sometimes relieve burdens that we have in our lives and struggles that we have in our lives. The second thing that I hope we can all learn from this story that I think is is a universal principle, not just for leaders, but, but for all of us, is that sometimes the way that we do things is not the best way to do things. And we should be willing to let go of what we are comfortable with or even what we like or even what makes us uh, uh, happy or maybe even sometimes what seems right to us for the sake of the good of ourselves and for others. Moses could have said, this is the way I've always done it. This is the way all the tribes around me do it. He could have dug in his heels and refused to change. If his father-in-law's words were prophetic, then this would eventually have led to burnout by him and also burnout of the people. Remember what his father-in-law said, this is not good, nor is it good for them. But if you do this, you will find the burden lifted off your shoulders and you will also see the people leave in greater peace. Leave in greater peace. In our lives, in our workspaces, in our homes, in our church, we should be willing to adjust for the sake of the good of others, even if sometimes it's not our preferred way or our idea. Can I use a somewhat silly example, but I think it makes the point. When Christina and I got married, I discovered that Christina sleeps on the right side of the bed, the right side when you're laying down, so my right side of the bed. She sleeps on the right side. Well, I also preferred to sleep on that side of the bed as well. And I really preferred it when we moved into our first house in Michigan, and then we moved into our second house in Michigan, and I discovered that Christina likes to not only sleep on the the right side of the bed, but she also likes to have the window open at night in the winter. And said window was on my side of the bed. And so I asked her one time, I said, can't we move? She goes, no, I can't sleep on the left side. I just won't be able to sleep. I said, but you want the window open and the window's on my side of the bed. And she goes, I know, but I got to have the window open to be awake, uh, to sleep. I got to sleep on the right side of the bed to sleep. And I got to have a fan on too. And now I can't go anywhere without a fan. I've slept in rooms now and there's no fan. I can't sleep. And I call Christina. I say, I'm still awake because there's no fan. Look what you've done to me. So I slept on, I sleep on the left side of the bed. Although my wife would probably say I prefer the whole bed, but I sleep on, on the left side of the bed. But you know what? Can I tell you something? Every morning my wife gets up around 4.30 or so to do her devotionals, then to go to the gym, and then go to work. Every morning except Sabbath. Devotionals, gym, work. Every morning when she gets up and she goes, you know what I do? I migrate to the right side of the bed. That is still my preferred side. That is still what I would rather do. But sometimes we surrender things, even what we prefer for the good of others. For the good of others. Like I said, it's a silly illustration, but I hope it makes the point. Little, little things, but, but sometimes those things are bigger. And, and, and Moses is confronted with, this is not working, Moses. And Moses says, you know what? Okay. 
I'm going to adjust for, for myself and for the people. Sometimes what I like the most or I am most comfortable with needs to be put aside for my own health or also for the health of others. And the third point that I, that I saw in this story that I think is, is a universal principle for all of us, no matter if we're a leader or not a leader. And I believe it's the most important point that I want to take away from this story. And it is what I would consider to be the, the good news of the story. As readers of this passage, and I think especially, like I said, if we are leaders or especially if we are church leaders, we can read this and we can get geeked out by the practical points of method and structure. Just do this this afternoon or tomorrow, whatever you want to do. Google Jethro and church and see how many websites See how many models, see how many books have been written, leadership books, church growth books on Jethro's model and the church. In fact, I remember when I was in my very first district and and I was trying to figure out how proportionally would Jethro's model apply to my church. You know, he had millions, I had like 60. How do I break that up so everyone has this structure? I mean, we sometimes take that as the model, and that's not really the, what, what we should take out of this. It should be the principle. We shouldn't try to adopt exactly what Jethro taught to Moses. It was in their context, in their time, in their way. But this is what we can get excited about in this passage, and, and, and as I've always been excited about that, I miss something, and I miss the most important thing. God didn't send Jethro to Moses that we could have something to write leadership books about thousands of years later. God did not send Jethro to Moses so that we could have models that we could throw up on a PowerPoint and present to groups. We did not send, he did not send Jethro to Moses so that Ed Schmidt could, could test us on it in my church growth class at seminary. God did not send Jethro for these reasons. And I've always missed this. I've always missed this. God sent Jethro to Moses because Moses was burdened and God loved Moses. That's the reason why he sent Jethro. God's people were burdened by Moses' leadership style and God wanted to relieve that burden. God wanted to relieve the burden of Moses. God wanted to relieve the burden of, of, of the people. Ellen White again. When Moses was much burdened, the Lord raised up in Jethro an advisor and a helper. When, the, when Moses was much burdened, God didn't say, oh, here's a good opportunity to get my leadership plan in place. When God raised up Jethro and Moses was burdened, God didn't say, oh, here's a great thing because one day pastors are going to talk all about how this is the structure and the model that we should follow within the church. When God raised up Jethro, he looked at his servant Moses and he said, he's burdened. He looked at his people and he said, they're burdened. And the heart of God said, I want to do something to relieve that burden in their lives. And that's why Jethro was sent. In other words, what I see here that I haven't seen before is that Exodus 18 is a testimony of a God who loves and longs to relieve our burdens. 
One of the names that I love for Jesus that Ellen White uses is the great burden bearer. Ultimately, Jesus is the great burden bearer. If you are under a burden right now in your life, a burden that is more than you can bear, I don't want you to look at this story and see principles of leadership and structure and management. What I hope that you'll look at this story and see is that, is that, that God may send someone unexpected into your life, someone surprising in your life, some, some means, some, some, some spoken word, some song that you would not expect in your life, that God may send that into your life to, to speak some truth in your life that will help lift those burdens out of your life. That as you read this book, you'll see that, that God may have a plan that seems different from what you want to do or what you have been doing, but that plan is ultimately because God wants to relieve these burdens from your life and that God sent Jethro and God continues to send people and God continues to desire to lift the burdens off of our shoulders. If you're someone in here, and I believe that is all humanity, that feels some burden in their life, I want you to know that this story is for you because this is a story of a God who sees a person burdened, who sees a people burdened, and says, I love them, so I'm going to send them a helper to lift those burdens. That's the God that we see in this story. There are all the other leadership things, and of course we can take those. But I believe if we miss that, we miss the best point. And there might be someone in here who says, man, I don't feel like anyone's been sent in my life. To all of you, I want to tell you this. For all of us, for all of humanity, the Bible tells us that Jesus came to this earth to make the sick well. That means to relieve the burdens. He came to, to open the eyes of the blind to relieve burdens. He came to heal the legs of the lame to, to relieve burdens. He came to, to, to lift up the oppressed to relieve burdens. That's what Jesus came into this world for, that we don't have our troubles removed. Moses still had to judge. He still had to be a part of that whole system. But God says, let me take some of this off of you. Let me... Let me relieve this burden. And that's what Jesus still does for each and every one of us. Jesus was sent into this world to give us hope that we too can have a burden bearer in our lives. So today, if you come here with a burden, whatever it may be, whatever challenge you may be having, you came here with some burden in your life, I pray that as you read this story, that you'll hear the story of a God who loves you, who cares about you, and simply wants to help you bear those burdens so you're not bearing them alone. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for being the great burden bearer in our lives. We thank you for this story, and I thank you for opening my eyes to this story in a new way that I had not looked at before. Lord, I thank you that you sinned uh, surprising messengers at times. I thank you that, that you, through your power, are able to adjust our thinking so that we see a new way, a new idea, even if it's something we still don't prefer or like. But, Lord, we, we recognize that, that you desire to lift burdens off of our shoulders or maybe off the shoulders of others. 
Jesus, I thank you that you are the ultimate Jethro. You are our ultimate helper, our ultimate advisor. Lord, so we ask you now, as you promised to do, and we claim this promise, Jesus, take us into your arms and lift the burdens that we cannot carry ourselves. In your name we pray, amen.